Does your car talk to you? My car talks to me. It says things like, Fog warning. You know, when she doesn't, yeah, it's kind of a mechanical woman's voice. It, it, when she doesn't know what to say to me, she says, Other warning. Oh, other warning? What is that? <laughs> I mean, what is going on? We're always having to be talked to by some technology. Wouldn't it be nice if when you were on the edge of doing something really dumb, that you had this voice in your head that said, other warning. <laughs> you know, just like, wouldn't that be that? Well, actually, you do. You do. You and I know when we're being tempted. We know what it feels like to be tempted. Scripture says that Jesus was tempted in every way that we're tempted, and yet without sin. That means it, it's possible for, now don't feel that as pressure. This is opportunity today to be able to steer away from those things that can get us into a place where we don't really want to go. Uh, you know, it, it, what I'm hoping this morning to do is through the eyes of, of Nathan, the prophet from the Old Testament. Nathan, as a prophet, was really the conscience of Israel, the conscience of the king. And he was the prophet during the time when David was a king, so you can see where we're going. Through the eyes of Nathan this morning, let's see how temptation can begin to give us an other warning. From the Word of God, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 14. Hear God's word this morning. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and grew up with him, and his children shared his food, drank from his cup, even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man who said to Nathan, and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because of what he did. Then Nathan said to David, you are that man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you the master's house to you, your master's wives and your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And all of this had been too little as if it had been, I would have given you more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with a sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them 
to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. Grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. We're going to see how that's true this morning. This ancient, ancient word so burning in relevance to us this morning. Temptation can be a warning system. It can be a warning system. Scripture says God won't allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear without providing a way out. Like that passage from James, God is not the one doing the tempting, but he can use temptation as a warning to us to make us more aware. Now, that's what we're talking about this morning. How does temptation make us more aware? More aware of our drift, more aware of what's really at the center, what's centering you, and more aware of a new motivation. You know, when you take away the guardrails, you know, we talk about guardrails and how guard, you need guardrails in your life, and that's, that's true. But when you remove the guardrails, what's there to motivate you to stay away from temptation? Is there something that can motivate us, not just to run away from, but are we running towards something? That's what I'm hoping we'll get to this morning. Let's take a look at how temptation is a warning system to make us more aware of our drift, our center, and our motivation. First, it can make us aware of our drift, our tendency to drift. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. The old hymn says, prone to leave the God I love. We have a capacity to drift. We still do. We still do. I'm just going to keep saying this because this is the point. And then I'm going to talk about that point for just a minute. We are prone to wander. No matter how long you've been following Christ, you're still there. Prone to wander. We often drift. Before Nathan said, you are that man. It's amazing how he sneaks in the back door of David's sensibilities. Why does he do that? Why does he have to do that? Because we don't think we're prone to wander. We're not really aware of our drift. Isn't it interesting how, uh, how when somebody else exaggerates how quick, and you know they're exaggerating, how quick we are to say, you know, that's a compromise, that person is exaggerating. And we kind of look down our nose at it. But when, when I'm exaggerating, when, when you're telling the story, right, when we're exaggerating, it's like, well, this is just color, right? <laughs> it's making more, more interesting, a more interesting story. When somebody else, see, we don't see, we're not aware of our tendency to drift. We see it in somebody else. But we make excuses, we, we rationalize when we do it, when we begin to compromise. That's why Nathan goes in the back door with this parable of the lamb. This rich man has all these lambs and cattle, and this pet of this poor man he takes from him. 
to prepare a supper. He sneaks in the back door of David's sensibility because you and I don't think that we're prone to drift. We, we only think the other guy's prone to drift. Gordon MacDonald was a pastor, uh, a very well-known pastor up in New England about the time I was in seminary. And just a few years before that, he uh, committed adultery. But before he did, he said to his staff, and I know somebody who was on the staff at the time, he said, the one place where the devil cannot get me is in my marriage. That's what he said. And what makes this story even more startling is that he was writing a book called Ordering Your Private World. (laughs) It's a great book. I would recommend it. But that's how blind we are to our capacity to drift off center. Somebody asked Billy Graham in the midst of all these others, these other leaders, well-known leaders who are falling to temptation. They said, well, what's keeping you from falling? And he said, well, every morning I pray that I won't be next. <laughs> it's, it's the awareness That we're not done. We don't turn the tassel on temptation and say, okay, I'm, I'm graduated. I've arrived. And see, this is the first lesson of Nathan's perspective. What he's drawing David towards is, is to see. Temptation is a warning system. It tells you, you are prone to wander. We are prone to wander. Someone said, you can't keep the birds from flying overhead, but you can keep them from nesting in your hair. That's a great image. Come on, y'all. What? I mean, this is David on, on the balcony. The birds are flying overhead. He's seeing Bathsheba. And you know, he could have turned away. He could have, I mean, he was a powerful man. He could have had her moved. He could have put up some kind of screen. But he let the birds nest in his hair. And so the humility to recognize you and I can drift we can drift. And temptation can be a warning system. Hey, you're beginning to drift. Well, drift from what? You say, drift from what? Drift from what's at the center. And so let's take a look at what's at the center. What's, what really centers us? Temptation can make us more aware of what centers our desire. And it's desire that really drives, isn't it? Tyler read that passage from James. It talks about when, when desire gives birth, you know, it, 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 it bears fruit of its desire. And when, when we're centered on the wrong thing, when our desires are centered on the wrong thing, it will bear bad fruit. When it's centered on the right thing, it'll bear good fruit. The shape, in other words, the shape of what's at the center of your life affects the circumference of your life. And so when you see what's going on in the circumference of your life, you know, the center ripples out. When you see at one of those ripples something is wrong, it means that something is off-center. means you've got the wrong shape of desire at the center. Are you getting the picture? If you're on the edge of your life or somewhere in the middle of your life here and, and you're saying there's something wrong here, there's something misshapen, it goes all the way to the shape of desire at the center. 
That's why in verse 13, David said, I have sinned. Now, we know what David did out here at the periphery, right? Against Bathsheba, against Uriah. So why does he say, I sinned against the Lord? And in Psalm 51, it says, against you only have I sinned. Why does he say that? Because he recognizes the problem out here is a problem at the center. Something is off at the center when something is off at the periphery. Against you alone I have sinned. David understands how behavior at the edge reflects a problem at the center. You you see this when someone has a misplaced kind of loyalty even to their spouse. So for example, if a spouse is an alcoholic, and, and their spouse, the spouse of the alcoholic, is covering for them or makes excuses for them. It feels like they're being loyal to that person, like they're being kind to that person. They've put the person at the center where he doesn't belong, where she doesn't belong. Only God belongs at the center of our lives. Only God can create the kind of circumference that reflects the goodness and the truth and the beauty that we're called to as people and capable of. And so when you have the wrong thing, I remember years ago uh, being pulled into a group of people who uh, I was trying to help them deal with this conflict. And I realized that the problem was a problem at the center. They were divided against each other. They were angry with each other. They were, I mean, families were divided against each other. There was this incredible threat. And, and when you peeled back all the layers, when you pulled back and you moved towards what was at the center, what was at the center was a personality. Somebody who had been given license to do things that he didn't need to be licensed to do. He, he didn't have any more accountability because people were loyal to him in a way that was really misshapen. You, you can't put a person, even a great leader at the center, without removing something else from the center. Do you see? What's at the center shapes the circumference. Now you can see why how hurting people on the circumference is really a sin against God at the center. Against you only have I sinned. You see, temptation, whether it's a warning or whether you've succumbed to it, it tells us there's something wrong at the center. It ripples out. David was made aware of his misplaced loyalty. And finally, temptation can make us aware of our motive to stay on course. And I I wanted to move quickly through those first two points. I hope you've got them, right? Drift, tendency to drift. We're still prone to wander. The shape of the center becomes the shape of the circumference. What's happening at the circumference reflects the problem at the center. Now let's think, what should be at the center? Let's spend a little time unpacking the hope behind this passage with David, with, with Nathan's message to David. He knows that David is going to continue to be king, that, that the shape of 
of Israel's life is going to ripple out from David's leadership and, and, and Nathan is showing him himself through temptation, showing him an ability to be driven by something other, to find a powerful motivation. Not, not the guardrails, not the guardrails. Um, when you remove the guardrails, when no one's looking, what is driving your life? What desire is centering your life? What is your motivation? David, David is forgiven. Verse 13, the Lord put away your sin. He put it away. He put it away. And here's the point. Rather than being driven away from further or future temptation by guilt, are you listening? Is that what's driving you to obedience? Guilt? What drives David? David feels drawn to God. Hear the two words, just because. Let's talk about that for a minute. Some years ago, I wrote this little story. I'm going to read it to you again. I'm going to do something a little different with it. Um, you'll recognize it, maybe if, you, if you've heard it. Uh, imagine a young couple in love, walking. They're just engaged, and they're strolling quietly in the sunset, uh, in the soft glow of their love and the soft glow of the evening. She asks him, why do you love me? <laughs> Are there a warning? <laughs> I, couldn't re- I couldn't resist, right? <laughs> Somebody in the room said, rut row, yeah. Yeah, Shaggy, watch out, Shaggy. Why do, you, why do you love me? The young man hesitates. He doesn't trust his own way with words. A little fear grips him. His mind's eye, he... A deep gap is opened up between them. And then he sees this narrow swinging bridge and he starts to step out onto it it to test it word by word. He says, well, I love your twinkling eyes, your bubbly enthusiasm, your carefree spirit. He says it more like a question. And she looks at him blankly like he hasn't answered yet. She's thinking, wait until I'm nine months pregnant Then how twinkly am I going to be then? How bubbly am I going to be? The young man feels the tension of the silence. And so he confesses something very revealing. He says, honestly, I don't know why I love you. But let me tell you how. And then he remembers a poet, Elizabeth Barrett Browning's poem, a sonnet. He says, how do I love thee? He had memorized it in high school. And he says, how do I love thee? Let me count the ways. I love thee to the depth and breadth and height my soul can reach. When feeling out of sight for the ends of being and ideal grace. I, I love thee to the level of every day's most quiet need. By sun and candlelight. I love thee as men strive for right. I love thee purely as they turn from praise. 
She gives him a look of marked satisfaction. He confesses, I suppose the best I can say in my own words is, I love you just because. Just because. Once someone is loved just because, then anything on the other side of because pales in comparison. Why do you love me? Just because. It, it, just because you play tennis so well and we enjoy playing tennis together. It just pales in comparison. Just because we have so much in common. Let's apply that to your relationship with God. Let's think about what David is experiencing in the forgiveness of God. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. If you love me, you will obey. He's not saying, if you love me, then you better obey my commandments. Or I'm gonna. He's saying, if you love me, then out of course, you will obey my commandments. What's on the other side of because when it comes to your obedience to God? What's on the other side of your because? Here are some options that we often find. I obey God because I'm afraid he will reject me if I don't. Because bad stuff might happen, right? Because I'm worried about being caught. Now, that's what Mark Twain said. That's, uh, that's one of the best motivations for obeying is uh, just being afraid of being caught. Cowardice, in other words. But here's another one. Because I don't want to be in the doghouse. That's, that's why a lot of us obey God. Whatever's on the other side of your because represents your real motivation to obey. The problem is that those guardrails aren't always there and they don't always hold. Temptation uh, finds a way around them. But when David experiences God's acceptance, when David hears God say, just because. You know, in Psalm 51, which is David's exposition, his, his, his just sort of outpouring of feelings of, of that whole scene with Bathsheba. When David says, let the bones you have crushed rejoice, what's he saying? He's saying God has gotten all the way in. He has wrecked me. He has wrecked everything on the other side of because. Nothing is like his acceptance of me just because. Let the bones you have crushed all of the merit, all of the reasons that I want to be accepted or loved or appreciated or valued as a human being, they pale in comparison to God's just because. And so he's saying the wounds of a friend are faithful. And you say, well, why doesn't forgiveness just give people license to disobey? Why doesn't it? Well, that can happen. It can happen in the same way that, that two people who, like the two people I described earlier, who are madly in love, have a family, and they, they drift. Their kids leave home, and they look at each other and say, who, who are you? Who is this person I've been spending the last 20 years with? Jesus says, if you love me, then you will obey. You see... 
There's a, a need to nurture our own just because. When you experience the just because of God, it's an invitation to find a new power plant of obedience, a new motivation of obedience, a new driver, something so profound is now at the center. And when you nurture that, that just because, that sweetness, everything else tastes, begins to taste a little plain. And you obey just because. I want to leave you this morning with a kind of assignment, if you will. You see, you, you and I are going to walk out of here, and a lot of this is going to go off into wherever it goes. And uh, I, want you to th- I want you to remember uh, this morning that, that we do tend to be driven away from sin by guilt, and this is not the best motivator. So how can you turn from turning from to turning towards? In other words, how can you have a motivation towards God rather than away from sin? You know, um, I think every family has an ER kid, right? Now, I'm going to tell you this story to try to explain what I'm talking about when I say, how do you deal with that moment when you're feeling tempted, where do you find a better motivation rather than just turning away from? I think every family has an ER kid, right? And, and ours was no different. Maybe we had more than one. I'm not sure. But uh, I got a little frustrated with one of our little ones. Uh, you know, it, it was that time when we had gone to the ER just one too many times, and you start wondering if they're going to pull in social services, you know. <laughs> I'm sitting there going, oh, man. <laughs> How many of these do we get in one year? I don't know, but uh, one more set of stitches, you know? And uh, what's going on in that Philston home, you know? And um, uh, I I was expressing my frustration to my mom, and she said, well, uh, let me remind you of uh, your own personal history. (laughs) You were my ER kid. Remember that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was that kid always in the ER. And I began to change my approach to these episodes, and I began to form a question. Did you do some learning? That's what I began to say. (laughs) Oh, you jumped off that thing. Oh, wow, you broke that? Later, did you do some learning? What if you had that kind of grace for yourself in that moment? Can I do some learning ahead of the temptation? As temptation is easing in, maybe ahead of stumbling, and certainly after you stumble, did I do some learning? You see, there's where God wants us. That's where he wants us. In a place where we have a sense of assurance that you're accepted just because. And we're called to respond to that. I have a sense of deep gratitude just because. Let's pray together. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, thank you for this kind of story so ancient and so new, so so buried in time and yet so relevant to now. Lord, may we appreciate our 
tendency to drift. May we find you at the center again. And may we be driven, driven by the same token that you've given to us. Uh, that we would find ourselves moving towards you rather than running in fear away. In Jesus' name, amen.